So we'll be in Galatians, finish chapter one, hopefully. So I'll keep hammering this point because it is what Galatians is about. What's the good news? According to a group of people, they were saying this, that to get into God's family, Abraham's family, really what it is, it goes back to him, the family of promise. To get into that family of promise, you have to observe Torah. And once you observe Torah, Jesus will save you. And now you're brought into Abraham's family. So they were saying this. Now, why would people say that? I'll give you two reasons why I think. Number one, it'd be like this. Imagine you had a dream for your life. Let's say it's to be the mayor of Grants Pass. And so you spend a lot of effort making sure your reputation is sound, volunteering all over the place, giving, just being a giving person, helping those that are down on their luck. Just you're organizing, raising funds. You campaign over and over. And finally, you're elected mayor of Grants Pass and you're just stoked. Dream job, all right. And so you go to this mayor's convention as people that are all mayors of similar sized towns. And you're like, yes, look at all these people that have done what I've done. They've worked hard, they've done it right. So you sit down next to this guy and you're like, hey, you're a mayor, I'm a mayor. How'd you get to be a mayor? And he's like, well, actually, <laughs> crazy story. I've been doing drugs my whole life. Stole most of what I have. What I didn't st steal, I did these shady deals and I get paid before and I just leave them, right? And then one night in this drunken kind of bet, I bet my buddies that I could become mayor of the city. They're like, no way, there's no way you could. So I'm like, I'm gonna, what's the bet for? One beer, okay, I'm doing it. And so I put my name in, it was just sign up for something and I didn't do anything, but all the other candidates dropped out and I'm the only one. And I won by one vote, literally one vote, my vote for myself, that was it. How would you feel? Would you be like, oh, that's so awesome, good for you. Or you'd be like, oh, I hate that. I hate that you got in that way. I worked my tail off for this position and you just get in, oh, that's the way they're feeling. All these people who for years had been observing Torah, doing everything right, are watching these pagans get in for free. And they're like, that's unfair. I don't like that. I'm gonna tell them they gotta shape up first. And that tendency is in all of us. That's the first reason. I think there's a second reason. It was very easy to tell who is in and who is out, right? Very easy to tell who was Torah observant. Your diet, the days you celebrated or took a Sabbath, and then if necessary, you dropped your drawers. So you could easily tell who's in and who's out. And that made it very nice for them, okay? We have the same issue today, deciding like who's in and who's out. So what religion does is this, and I've used this illustration before, but I think it's a good one. Religion is like a corral. Like you know who's in 
because they're inside the fence that you've put up. And they've got the brand, right? Okay, all of these creatures are inside. They're in the corral. They have the brand on them. They may not even want to be in there. They may want to get out, but they can't. They're trapped by the fence. So they're in. That's what religion does, right? You can tell someone who is Islamic. How? Well, the way they dress. You can tell someone who's Amish, right? It's, it's very easy. <laughs> they have the beard without the mustache, the big top hat. The, they, they drive a horse and buggy. You can tell instantly. There's, there's really good ways to tell. Well, the Pharisees were the same way. They had these real rigid guidelines. You could instantly tell who's in and who's out. In comes Jesus. And what does he do? He just knocks the corral over. He invites prostitutes to come in and tax collectors to come in. So it irritated these corral keepers who were like, what are you doing? How are we not gonna tell who's in and out? How are we gonna decide who we can hang out with and who we cannot hang out with? Because you're hanging out with all the wrong people. You're making this super complicated, Jesus. And that's what he does. So corrals are like that. Here's what I think Christianity is like. It's like a watering hole. That's not about rules to keep people in. It's this desperate drive to say, I've got to go there because there's life. It doesn't matter what I encounter, I've got to get there. And to me, that's John chapter six, where Jesus really weans them out. And at the end of that chapter, if you know it, Jesus says, are you guys going to take off too? I'm not doing the corral thing. Are you going to take off too? And Peter says this, no, because you alone have the words of eternal life. I have to get to you. I have to go to you. You're the water of life. I can't stop myself, right? So it makes it much more difficult because if you look at the 12 disciples, Judas would look like he's in the corral, man. He's, gonna, he's the top dude Jesus has. But guess what? He was actually moving away from the water. He's like, I don't want this water anymore. I want to get away. So it's his trajectory was away while all the wrong people, their trajectories were toward Jesus, right? Zacchaeus, the tax collector, what does he do? I gotta get to Jesus, but I can't make it to the crowd. So I'm gonna climb up in a tree just to try to get close to him. That's how important it was to him. That drive, that desire, I've got to get to Jesus. That's Christianity. And I think you'll know whether you're a corral mentality person, you know, got this really good shape and I know who's in and out, or if you're a watering hole personality by one thing, how you view repentance. Because repentance to a corral person means this. I'm on the outside now. Oh no, I lost something and I gotta get back in. Oh great, everyone's gonna know I'm a failure. So repentance looks at your life as a failure. If it's a watering hole, you look at repentance very differently. You say, this is freeing me to get to the water faster. Thank you, Jesus, for revealing this thing to me. I get to just take this burden off me. I get to take this junk off me and I get to the water quicker. Awesome, thank you. So you view repentance as winning. It's a very different way. So that's what Paul's doing right now. You have this group of people that are coming in saying, rules, you got a Torah observant or you're not saved. And Paul would say, uh-uh, uh-uh. There's a new system and it's very different from the corral. And this new system, it's based on the facts that Jesus is Messiah, God in the flesh. He has come to renew all things through his death 
and resurrection. And he's creating a new family that you get in by his grace alone. And I think if you read Galatians, that's the way he'd put the gospel. So when he looks at Zacchaeus in the tree and he goes to dinner with him, at the end of that, does anyone know what he calls Zacchaeus? This is truly a son of Abraham. What's he saying there? Going back to the covenant, this is a man who is now engaging in the promises of blessing that God wants for people of faith. That's what he's saying. This is the son of Abraham. He's in the family now. Salvation has come to this house today. This is truly a son of Abraham by faith. Simple, okay? So that's the battle lines. And Paul's now gonna try to hammer this out through three courses. You're going to school. I'll mention the outline again. Course number one, history. History 101, and it's chapters one and two. And history, the subject of history here is the gospel. So he goes over the history of the gospel, chapters one and two. Chapters two and three, theology 101. And it's one thing. Does anybody remember? Faith. That's what God's after. Faith. This entire book, faith. And then lastly, biology 101. Great. We've got the gospel. We've got faith. And then this is how to actually live it. And it's the spirit life. That you and I live through the spirit life. Brilliant book. Okay, so we'll jump in. Chapter one, verse 11. For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. Paul was varsity. And varsity means this. He memorized the first five books of the Bible. Just think about that for a second. Ever tried to read through the Bible? Right, Genesis, okay. Exodus, okay. Then you hit numbers. What happens in numbers? All the names, you just give up. Like, I can't even do this. He memorized all those names. I can't remember the names of my five kids. Right, when I'm trying to get them, like, Carissa, Bella, you there, here, now, right? He memorized, just brilliant. He's like, I was top of my class. It's unbelievable. But, when he who had set me apart before I was born, who called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not consult immediately with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Couple of things. Number one, verses 11 and 12, he's addressing an accusation that he was a copycat. So this group that was coming in trying to put up the Torah on people, the corral, instead of the watering hole, what they're saying about Paul is this, hey, he's just a copycat. He wasn't part of the original 12. He's not even from the mother church of Jerusalem. 
He's, he's second class at best. So what Paul says is something interesting. There are different ways that you can learn. You know that. You can learn by receiving what you're doing right now. So one-way one way conversation for the most part. And it's, I've studied, I've digested some stuff and tried to put it together in such a way that it can be understood. And that's a good way to learn. First Timothy 2.2. 2 Timothy 2.2. 2. Take what I've taught you, Timothy, and teach godly men who will then teach godly men. That's a great way. That what you've received, you pass on, you become a conduit for it. So you can do it that way. Number two, you can study it for your own. Be a Berean, Acts chapter 17. Or again to Timothy, study to show yourself approved unto God, a workman that needs not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth you and your Bible. And that's great. But there is a third way. And it's through revelation. And what Paul says here is, listen, I didn't receive this by studying. I didn't receive this by someone telling me about it. It was revelation. It's Matthew 16. Flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father, which is in heaven. And revelation, if you've ever had it, goes incredibly deep. And I don't know if you've ever experienced this, but a handful of times there's been revelation in my life. And it wasn't like an audible, there was not a bush on fire that wasn't being burned up and I didn't hear a voice from God, but there were just moments where there was something impressed on me that was so much bigger and different than me that I knew that's not me, that's not me. And I can remember those moments, the place I was standing in the woods or on a balcony in Kyoto when I was working as an engineer, just went out there one morning with my Bible. I can remember like, oh my goodness, revelation. And those things, they never go away. They go deep. Do you want revelation? Here's what I think the requirement is. Giving God's spirit space. That I think one of the tactics of the enemy is keep us so busy and so full that we never have any margin where we can just sit and say, I wanna hear, I wanna listen. We don't do that anymore. It's super important. So I love reading biographies of great people of God. And Jonathan Edwards, who arguably is the greatest theologian America has ever produced, he had a habit at 3.30 every single day. He'd get on his horse, ride out into the woods and pray. Over and over, years and years and years of this. One time he came back and if you know, Jonathan Edwards, he was the most non-charismatic guy ever. He would write out his sermons and then he would read them in a monotone voice because he did not want to use his passion to persuade people. So he's literally like, Bueller, Bueller, Bueller. And then God's spirit would just fall on people and they'd repent. And he's like, he just keep reading. They're falling in the aisle, crying. And he just keeps reading his sermon. Cause like, it's God's spirit. I'm just gonna read my sermon. I mean, he was that guy. So he's not the crazy, like charismatic dude, but he said, and he wrote his journal, I met God in the woods today. I met God in the woods. Something happened, revelation. Or Blaise Pascal, that brilliant scientist. Like we would not know what happened to Blaise Pascal, but you can actually see in his life, there's a tipping point where he just dramatically changes. And then when he died, they took off his overcoat and inside the overcoat was this parchment that was old and he had written out what had happened to him. He wrote the date of it, the time of it, and he just said, 
fire, glory. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, fire and glory. And from that day on, he was a transformed man. Revelation happened to him. But both of them provided margin for that to occur. Take some margin, take some space. Isaiah 50 verse four says this, in the morning, he opens my ear to hear him and I'm not disobedient. I love that little saying. In the morning, I'm gonna take some time and slow down and provide margin so that God can reveal himself to me. So that's first what Paul says. Second, he says this, and I have it actually circled in my Bible. Verse 13, for you have heard of my former life. What had they heard about Paul in his former life? Dude murdered Christians. That dude's a murderer. That's what he is. They knew about his former life. Everyone should have a former life. This is who I was before, but I'm not that anymore. That is my former life. That's not my present life. We should all have, that's not me anymore. That's my former life period. I was blind, but now I see. I was a murderer, but now I'm not. Let me read for you one little text that I think tells us how to have that former life. And I believe that you're actually supposed to be continually having former lives, that I'm not the guy I was last year. Praise God. That's my former life. I am even today being transformed by the power that we'll see into something different. So it's 1 Corinthians chapter six. Listen to what it says. Beginning in verse nine. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Verse 11, and such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by, and this is the key, and by the Torah you kept and by your disciplined life and by your devotional life. What does it say? By the spirit of our God. What changes you and me is God's spirit. And that is a theme in scripture. You can go, it, oh, I could go to a ton of scriptures over and over. God's spirit changes me. I can provide space for it, no doubt. But the agent of change that gives me a former life, this is what you were before, it's the power of God's spirit, which is chapters five and six. And we'll get there. Trust me, we'll get there. <laughs> so former life, we should all have a former life. Number three, look what he has a zeal for. Verse 14, I'm advancing, top of my game, top of my class. I was zealous for the traditions of my fathers. 
Not even for scripture. What's he zealous for? Traditions. Ever watch Fiddler on the Roof? Traditions? I love that movie. So good. That's exactly Paul. It's tradition. I was zealous for tradition. You know why? Tradition is the hardest to break. What you were raised in forms your brain in such a way that to break out of that is, it's just nearly impossible. I have traditions that I still this day, I'm like, hmm, I don't know about that, right? Gospel outreach. When I was there, we had to watch Hell's Bells. Anyone in youth groups in the 1980s watch Hell's Bells? So good, right? That if you listen to this secular music, what's gonna happen is it is gonna open a portal into your soul and a demon's gonna jump into you, right? That's the message of it. There's backmasking in it. Look out, it's gonna get you. And if you didn't get that in Hell's Bells 1, they had Hell's Bells 2. If you didn't get it in 2, they had Hell's Bells 3. You're like, I heard it already, right? So still to this day, I'll be driving in my car and a secular song will come and I'll be like, oh no, oh no. Can't get in, stay out, <laughs> right? Because there's this tradition in me, right or wrong, that, oh, bad. Or drums, at Gospel Outreach, we had this pastor from Africa come in. And he said, well, I went to an American church and they had drums and they were playing that. And the beat they were playing was the exact beat my tribe uses to conjure up spirits. And I was like, ah, drums are bad, right? Still to this day, man, the drum beat. Like, I don't like, the, it's like, hey, I can feel them. They're coming right now, <laughs> Right? And then we had this other guy come and he's like, there was this case where this kid was having really dark nightmares, demonic nightmares. And no one could figure out what it was until this pastor came into their house and they saw this gift that was framed on the wall and it was a tribal mask. And they said, the demons are coming through that mask and it's a portal to them and they're coming into his room. The minute they got rid of that mask, the nightmares disappeared. Yeah. So I hear that, I'm like, oh my goodness. So I go to Vanuatu where there's a lot of spiritism and a lot of that kind of stuff. And I become super good friends with these students. They're just, well, you live with them. We, I would garden with them. I'd go fishing with them. I'd teach them the Bible. I'd go visit their families. We'd go in the jungle with them. I love these guys. So at the end of it, they had carved me this tribal staff that had two faces on it. And then a tribal mask, like literally a tribal mask. You're like, ah. So I've got these gifts and I'm like, oh, great. And Dave Corson comes over to me and he was the principal at the time. And this is what, maybe he could read minds. He's like, Matt, know this. When you go back to Grant's Pass, there are gonna be people that will say to you, oh, you can't keep those. Those are demonic. He said, those people are stupid. <laughs> Don't listen to them. And I'm thinking, well, that's me, man. If you like them so much, you can have them. Take them, Dave, please. <laughs> and this is what he said. He said, those things were made by men who love you and they're trying to demonstrate how much they love you. And it's your heart that matters, Matt. And that really, really helped me. I said, that's right. I still have them to this day. I don't have nightmares. None of my kids have nightmares, Right? I keep them out in my study, not in my house. I'm kidding. <laughs> kind of, actually it's true. 
<laughs> but not for that reason. It reminds me, there are these men that love me so much, they gave me what they could. But traditions, they get in so deep into you, they're super hard to ever break. He is zealous for the traditions. What are we to be zealous for? We'll see, it's the end of this chapter, and we'll get there. All right, so number four, notice this. Such a packed section. But when he who had called me apart, verse 15, before I was born, and called me by his grace, verse 16, was pleased. What pleased God? Let me ask you this question. Who right now would say, I please God? Raise your hand. Fascinating. Like very, a few very timid people. Yeah, maybe. If I get struck with lightning. Uh. Why is that? You know, I'll tell you a great morning devotion is to sit down and ask yourself, what do I think pleases God? And write it out. What do I do in my life that I believe this activity or this thing pleases God? The bumper sticker on my car really pleases God. I know it does. Daughter witnessing really pleases God. Wearing no lipstick. I'm just like God made me. That really pleases God. <laughs> Food I eat, it really pleases God. I only eat angel food cake. It really pleases God. He's totally stoked with me. <laughs> right? It's a very good thing to sit. What do I believe pleases God? And then whatever you've written out, why do I believe that? Is it a tradition? Why do I believe this thing that I do or I do not do? Why do I believe that pleases God? Guess what Paul says pleases God? Being introduced to his son. It pleased God to introduce me to his son. What dad doesn't want to introduce their friends to, the, to their sons? Meet my son, the one in whom I'm very pleased. It pleases me to introduce to you my son. And he introduces him to a murderer. We don't normally introduce our sons to murderers, but it pleased God to introduce Jesus to a murderer named Paul. It pleases God to introduce to you and me, Jesus Christ. That pleases God. Pretty simple. And then lastly, at the end of this, he says this, verse 17. Nor did I go up to Jerusalem. So this happens to me, Acts chapter nine. I'm knocked off my horse. Or if he didn't ride a horse off a donkey, or if he's walking, he's knocked to the ground, whatever happened to him. He's knocked down, bright light. All this stuff happens to him. Jesus appears to him, he's blind, has a vision. If that all happened to you, what would you do? Man, I'm gonna go see a doctor, talk to a pastor, talk to somebody, right? To both. What does Paul do? I didn't talk to anyone who are apostles, but I went away into Arabia, the desert. He this event happens to him. He can't explain it. So he immediately goes out to Arabia and then went back to Damascus. I think this is one of the best pictures of how you and I are to walk out our faith. That when something happens to us that we can't explain, the first thing we should ever go do is go meditate. Okay, 
I've got a question. I need to go think about this for a while. Today, we don't do that, do we? We do what one of my theology professors, he said this, what we do today, because we have this vast knowledge of people, we ask our John, whatever John we like, right? We have a question, something happens. So we ask John Calvin or Jonathan Edwards or John Corson or John MacArthur or John Piper, right? You can go on, John Ortberg, Elijah John Heverly. He's in there. Right? We ask somebody, that's our tendency now. We don't do what Paul does. We immediately go to a person and say, what is this? And here's the reason why. And I think we get Christianity fundamentally wrong right here. We think Christianity is factual when it's actually family. And because we believe it's factual, we think we gotta get the facts right. But it's not. It's God saying, hey, let me introduce you to my son get to know him. It's family, it's relationship. But we are so stuck on getting the facts right that we miss getting the family right. And we miss Christianity. And most people that I know, they think it's about facts. Gotta get all my facts right. Gotta gotta know all this stuff. If you wanna get to know somebody, what do you do? After you Facebook stalk them. Can I find out first, right? Do you go ask somebody else about them? If you want to get to know my wife, would you like, well, let's invite Elijah John, her son out to dinner and let's ask him, hey, tell me about your mom. Well, she makes me do a lot of chores. She makes me wear clean clothes. I have to comb my hair before I leave the house. She wakes me up early in the morning to go to school. Oh, she must be a drill sergeant, right? No. You'd say, hey, I'd love to get to meet you. I'd love to get to know you. Can we hang out? Can we talk? That's what Paul learns. This is not about facts. This is about family. So I'm going first to him. But then secondly, notice what he does. And this second part is just as important. Verse 18, then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas, Peter, and remained with him 15 days. But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. And what I am writing to you before God, I don't lie. And I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia and I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They were only hearing it said, he who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And they glorified God because of me. After he goes to the desert in Arabia, he then checks in with Cephas hangs out with him for 15 days. Am I on target here? Am I learning right? Is this idea that that was revealed to me, can you you tell me if I'm correct or not? And then we'll get to chapter two. Chapter two, especially verse nine, Peter and James say, dude, same gospel. Yep, we'll preach it to the Jews. You take it to the Gentiles. So he gets clarification. It's not, hey, I'm on my own, doing my own thing here. It's I'm gonna meditate and learn and have a revelation, but then I'm also gonna check it through people that know as well, the family. I'm gonna check it through the family as well. And that's what Paul does, it's brilliant. And then it says this, people are hearing about me and what they heard was, the guy that used to persecute us and kill us is preaching the faith. It'd be like you and me hearing that Kim Jong-un became a Christian 
and he's preaching the gospel and he's planning a church in Pyongyang. We'd be like, whoa, that's insane. How cool is that? Amazing, huh? Okay, so two quick points. Paul is now giving his testimony, right? And he gives some parts that are not very flattering to him. And he's giving it to a church that he plants and had pastored a while. Super personal. So when I was in seminary, we had this class where part of it was this discussion and a debate and then an essay you had to write. Everything was an essay. And it was on this. How personal should a pastor get in talking about their past sins and their present sins? There's a fascinating debate because there's people across the spectrum, right? Quoting old guys. Richard Baxter, great Scottish preacher. And he was like, you have to demonstrate holiness to your congregation. And that's it. Follow me as I follow Christ. So on that spectrum, it's you don't ever share anything that might be at all not what holiness is. And then the other spectrum, it was like, you just be an open door. <laughs> It'd be every Sunday, man, confession time, right? Just across the spectrum. It was really a great conversation. And what I thought about it and I wrote was this. You see Paul in Romans 7 talking about, hey, the things that I wanna do, I don't do. I'm not a superhero. You see him talking to Timothy, who he knew even better, and he, he gets more in depth about what his problems were because it was personal. So for me, I was like, it's gotta be a balance. And I gotta be careful about what I say because it, it's interesting. Like um, a couple of weeks ago, I talked about binging on Netflix. And I met with this great young guy and we're talking. He's like, right after that, I went home on Wednesday night. Guess what I did? Yeah, binged on Netflix. It's like, oh, it's the weird thing. It's what Paul says in Romans seven, that the law awoken in me, really bad things. That the thing that was supposed to be good, read Romans 7, it's fascinating. The thing that was supposed to be so good, what it did to me was the exact opposite. It awoke in me all these desires that I didn't even know were there until we started talking about them. And then I'm like, oh man, that was there. So I gotta be super careful. I'll mention a movie and then someone will email me, hey, I watched that movie you were talking about. I'm like, oh, gotta be careful. What is that movie? Is that movie good or not? Like, right? And the biggest one was this. This is what really caused me to, really be careful was a guy that I had taught Romans 7 and I had made a reference to pornography. And this guy said, dude, I've struggled with pornography my whole life. You know, that, that story, I'd been free for years. That Wednesday night, I went home and I stumbled for the first time in years. What, preaching about that sin? what did it do? It awoken in him something. So I realized that, and this is all in my essay, I gotta be super careful. That sometimes the things I say, I'm trying to say them in a way that, that warns people, but in fact, it does the opposite. It awakens something in you. So there's like gotta be this balance. I'm still praying what that balance is. To me, it's razor thin. Razor thin. You can't set yourself up as a superhero pastor because then when you fall, man, you just make a bunch of people appalled at you. That's what happens. But on the other side, I gotta be really careful about what I say because it can actually awaken in people the opposite of what I wanted to try to do. And that's why it was such a great discussion. Paul seems to balance it so well here. Not scintillating, 
right? Some, some addiction groups are bad because what happens after they discuss some stuff is they go out and they smoke cigarettes and what do they do? Man, they start sharing the glory. Man, I used to do this and I used to do that. And man, and everyone's like, oh, that sounds like a lot of fun. What are we doing in this meeting, man? Let's go, right? You gotta be super careful. So it's, a, it's, it's and I think that goes not just for pastors, it goes for us when we're talking. We gotta be very careful with sin because it is so sneakily powerful. What it can awaken in people. Gotta be so careful. So careful. That's why Paul's so careful. Like he doesn't get simply, he doesn't, he doesn't make it bigger than it is. Just matter of fact, go through it, okay? Secondly, here's the question I have on this. Is it better to never need to be forgiven? So you live a life where you don't have issues and problems and you don't have that kind of testimony. So you never need to be forgiven. You don't do life wrong. (laughs) Paul's like, man, I really, really did life wrong. That was really bad. Murdered people. What's better? It's an interesting question to me. I have this study at home. It's called the hygiene hypothesis. And it was in the Journal of American Medicine, like a major good, good article. And it was, what, what they found is this, that if a person had siblings growing up, they were 90% less likely to have an autoimmune disease. And so they're like, what does that mean? Here's what they think it means. It means if you have siblings, you're exposed to more junk, right? They're bringing home the flu and the cold. And if you have a lot of kids, you know this, it comes like a hurricane. And right when you think you're done, no, you're in the eye, it's gonna hit you on the backside on the way out. So it's just like, ah, we were sick for like three months straight. But what that does is it, it, it actually focuses your immune system on what it needs. And they, they started to say, think that maybe if you have too clean, too hygienic of an environment for a child, that the, that the immune system isn't directed correctly. And so then what happens is it starts to attack. Autoimmune is you attack yourself. So... Um, if your house is dirty, you just say, I'm doing it for the kids. I'm just doing it for the kids. It's the struggle is real, but you know what? My kids are more important. <laughs> I think I really bought into it. Cause I'm like, I let my kids eat dirt. Elijah licked like the elevator buttons in a, you know, I'm like, that's fine. It won't kill him. It'll make him stronger. Trust me, sweetie. She did not buy into it at all. She's like, that's so disgusting. <laughs> Well, it happened fast, sweetie. And you got to wonder, like, do we, do we need a little bit of that? Does it shape you in such a way? Jesus would say, he who has been forgiven much, loves much. And I think about my own life, like hard things that I've been through, not necessarily even sinful, but just difficulty has been so important for me. Gospel outreach and its legalistic craziness growing up with all these traditions, all this stuff made me aware of like the brilliance of grace. Would I appreciate grace so much if I'd been raised in grace? I don't know. Because it was such good news to me when I'm like, oh my goodness. That's what grace is. Ha ha. Ha. The corral fence broke down and I found water for my soul. Like, ah, that's grace. Marcus Borg. Hardest two years of my life. I get on fire for Jesus. I'm at Oregon State University. Going there, I take this class called 
the Jesus seminar. I'm like, oh, I can learn about Jesus and get credit at school. This is so awesome. It wasn't because he didn't believe in Jesus. Not at all. And he systematically dismantled my faith. Like in the beginning, it was me and this other girl that would be like, hey, no, what about this? Hey, what about this? And then person it was just me. And I brought my Bible. I'd have my Bible on the table. I'd be like, what about this? And he just dismantled the Bible in front of me. It was brutal. But dark, dark, hard, hard time, brutal. But out of it, I had this passion for people that are in that same position. I have a passion for apologetics and making sense of what we see in the world scripturally. And would I have that same passion without that? I don't know. What are you saying, Matt? Should we go out and sin a bunch? No, Romans 6, 1. Sin always leaves scars. Scars always hurt. But I would say this. Grace is so strong that when we give God those hurts and those scars, he is able to transform them. That Paul, the persecutor, becomes Paul, the lover, who gives his life for the believers that he had been killing. It's amazing. John Newton, the slave trader, who is a really bad dude, read his testimony, becomes the keystone of the abolitionist movement that outlaws slavery in the entire British empire. Now, would he have been that passionate about it if he hadn't seen the stuff he had seen and done the stuff he had done? I don't know. I don't know. Would Paul have been so incredibly used? I don't know. I just know there's amazing grace that God will take our scars and turn them into something brilliant. And then he ends by saying this, they glorify God because of me. Our goal is that right there. You wanna be zealous for something? Be zealous for the glory of God. What brings God glory? Introducing people to his son. I'll give you one more. This one is Isaiah 30. Read Isaiah 30. Read the whole book of Isaiah. Read the whole Bible. I think I said that on Sunday. It's a good idea. Here's what Isaiah 30 is. The people are saying, you know what, God, we don't need you anymore. We're gonna go get whatever we need from Egypt. And then God's like trying to work with them and help them. And they keep saying, no, but I'll help you. No, I'll help you. No. So here's what he says to this rebellious people. Verse 18. They're not gonna listen to God. They're gonna do their own thing. Verse 18. Therefore, Yahweh waits to be gracious to you. Therefore, he exalts himself to show mercy to you. For Yahweh is a God of justice and blessed are all those who wait for him. What brings God glory? Show you mercy. How incredible is that? How incredible is that? That what exalts, glory just means exalting, put him up where he belongs. Somebody says, I can be merciful to you and introduce you to my son. It's a different God than the God I was raised with. But it's so brilliant. It changes your life. So Jesus, this day, may we know what pleases you. May we be able to shed some of the things 
the traditions that can corral us in and actually trap us in weirdness. We pray that you would come in and knock those tables over and clear out the temples of our souls so we could experience you and know you. May we know that you're pleased with us because we've been introduced to your son. May we walk out with that. May we be able to raise our hand next time someone asks, are you pleasing to God? Well, yeah, because I know his son. May we, know, may we know you better, Jesus. May we make space in our lives, in our busy lives to know you. And may you reveal to us yourself in a depth and in a way that we never forget. And we carry with us like Blaise Pascal over our hearts for our whole lives. May you reveal yourself to us. May we go from here knowing that no matter what happens to us, we are more than conquerors in you. We ask this in your name, amen. Amen, God bless you guys.